You know what? I always think it's a good idea to ask God for wisdom. I don't care if things are going really well. It's not a bad idea. Ask God for some wisdom. On the other hand, according to 1 John 1 through 7, God invites us to walk in the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. So God's intent is that he walks in the light and we walk with him. And so then we walk in the light. John 8, 30 through 36 tells us that God wants us to know the truth so that we can be free in him. All of us need the wisdom of God, but some people don't recognize the need. And that's what the Bible refers to as being wise in their own eyes. People think they know more than they do. Have you known people like that? I have. I've known people like that, and, and people, people like that have knowledge in every single area of life. Have you ever known someone like that? They know about plumbing. They know about electricity. As a matter of fact, they have a degree in electricity. They know about psychology. In fact, they have, they have a degree in psychology. They know about business. They can help you with your taxes because they have a degree in taxes. They know about medicine. You feel sick, go talk to them. They know about it. In fact, there's very little they don't know. They know about everything. There's people like that who are wise in their own eyes. Let's don't be wise in our own eyes. Far better to feel like we don't know anything about anything. Far better to say, I need help in every area of life. I need godly wisdom. It's far better to see ourselves as having needs that God can fulfill than feeling like we're wise in everything. That, that is a, that, that is a, uh, that's a trap when we feel like we're wise in everything. So every day we have opportunities to trust in our, our own wisdom or ask God for God's wisdom. We have the opportunities to live in the flesh or to walk in the spirit. And we have opportunities to be in slavery, the darkness of sin, or be set free by the light of Christ. There's, there's godly wisdom that can be ours only by coming to God, asking for God, recognizing his, our need for his wisdom, recognizing that we need to ask for wisdom. If we ask God for wisdom, God will give it. He promised. The promise is clear in verse 5. Ask for wisdom and God will give it. We will receive it. The focus is not on us. The focus is not on us. It's on God. The focus is on God. God is described as being liberal. There's a word there in your Bible that says liberal, and that means uh, one who gives without reproach. I want to be clear on this one. We're not talking about liberal like politics, okay? There's a group, there's a political group of people who are referred to as liberal, and they are over here. They're on one side. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about generosity. That's like, if, that's like if somebody is serving you ice cream and they're very liberal with the ice cream. That means they give you four or five scoops instead of one. They're generous with it. That's what 
this word liberal is. So as we, as we read the Bible, as we study, God enjoys giving. He's generous. You know, it's God's character to give. It's in his character to want to give to his children. Think about how you like giving something to your kids or your grandkids. You look at their face when you hand it to them. You look at their face, and it's just beautiful. Beautiful. And you just feel so good because you've given them something that they wanted. You know, we love giving things to our kids. There's nothing better than that. God, love is God's motive for giving. He wants to give to us. In fact, he loved us so much that he gave us his very best. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his very best for us. God gives generously. You know, God also wants to build us up. God doesn't want to tear us down. There are times when we have to have some correction, when we have to have a, a redirection, but that's not what God wants. It's not what God loves to do. God loves to build us up. He doesn't refuse or reproach anyone unnecessarily, and he never puts anyone down. So verse 6, John 1, we should ask in faith, not doubting. Faith is central to the teaching of James. Faith is central. And faith is central to a Christian lifestyle. James tells us that we have to ask for wisdom with faith. Ask for wisdom with faith. Everything that we do, everything we do in relationship to, to God or to Jesus has to be done in faith. We have, to, we have to ask believing. We have to live life believing. We have to believe that God is not only capable of giving us wisdom, but that he will give wisdom to us as we request it from him. So we go through life one day, one day we're having a challenge in an area, and we ask God for wisdom in dealing with that one area. And we pray, we pray believing it, God gives it to us, because God will give it to you immediately. You know, it's not, it's not, like, on a, um, it's not like on an installment plan, you know, where God gives you the wisdom over a 90-day period of time for something. No, no, God gives it to you. God gives you the wisdom. Because tomorrow, it will be something else. And you need to pray then, ask God, God, help me with this. Help me understand this. Help me get through this. And you pray with faith, and God provides. God provides a lot of times on a daily basis. In fact, you could probably say that God provides on a moment-by-moment basis, depending on what you're dealing with. Because you might get up till 12 o'clock, and the day went pretty well. And the clock rolls around to 1 o'clock, and all of a sudden, it's not going so well. All of a sudden, you got a phone call, and your life changed. And you need wisdom for that moment. And so God provides that wisdom for that moment. So we see the practicality of our faith. It's so practical. Our faith is active. It's active. It's not a passive thing not where you just lay down, you know, give me some wisdom, God. 
pass it on over here and just lay there. No, you're involved in receiving the wisdom. You are praying. You have active faith. So we need to be engaged with God. Too many Christians want to sit back. They'll sit back, kind of like some of you are right now, um, lounging in your chair. That's fine for uh, that's fine for the Sunday service, but don't leave here and do that. Don't leave here and think that you're going to lounge, and God is just going to pour His blessing out on you. You need to be actively engaged with God. We need to be actively obeying Him. God is going to put something on your heart, and He's going to say, "You know, I have something here." I would like for you to do for me. I would like for you to pick up the phone and make a phone call to somebody. And you're lounging in your chair, and it's just too comfortable, you know? It's just too comfortable. You just lounge there, and you forget about it. And here, God asks you to do something for Him, and you didn't do it because you're too comfortable. That's not active faith. You know, God doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't enable us to do. You might feel like, well, I don't know what to say. God gives you the words. Pick up the phone, and when somebody answers, God will give you the words. He won't give them to you while you're laying there in the couch. That's active faith. That's doing something for God. So when we're actively obeying him, when we're asking for faith... Then James shares two examples, two graphic examples of what we should not do to clarify this point. So in verse 6, faith excludes doubting. You can't doubt and you can't believe at the same time, can you? You can't say, you can't say, I believe that God is going to give me exactly what I need for that moment. He's going to give me the wisdom I need to speak words that glorify him and that meet the need of that moment. And then in the back of your mind saying, gee, I really hope God comes through. I hope he comes through on this. I have to admit I've done that. I have to admit I, I, I have done that. I had an experience. Um, I had an experience. I was working as a hospice chaplain, and uh, I had a non-believer in the car with me. And this non-believer had very high expectations of me. She said, she said, you have a closer relationship with God than I do. You pray. Because we were going to go in and see a lady, and she was nasty. She was a, she was a nasty woman. She was a horrible woman. She would throw things at you. She would try to run you over with her walker. We were both scared. So I said, okay, I'll pray. And I said, God, if you don't come through now, my whole credibility is going to fall apart. Because my friend believed. She believed that if I prayed, that God would answer the prayer. And so I... I didn't pray it out loud because I didn't want her to know I was a little worried. 
But I said, God, I hope you come through. If you come through, then she'll believe in you. But if you don't, it's going to be a bad day for me. And so I prayed, I just prayed that this woman would be nice. I just prayed that God's spirit would be on her and on us. And we went in there, and it was like an absolute miracle transformation of this woman. She was the nicest lady you'd ever met. She picked little flowers off of, she had these fake silk flowers in there, and she gave one to both of us. She had a little, uh, she had a little plastic toy animal that she was playing with, and she gave that to me. I was flabbergasted. I didn't even know what to say or what to think. But you've got to go into situations praying that God will be there for you. Don't doubt. Don't doubt. That, that one day told me, what that day told me was that even in the most insignificant moments, God will be with you. He won't leave you hanging. He won't hang you out to dry. Pray believing. Ask believing. Sometimes I think we pray, but we have so much doubt on the other side of our mind that it just can't get through. You know? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, well, if anyone else prayed, God would answer the prayer, but not me. I'm so insignificant that God doesn't even, God won't even slow down his day to listen to me. And that's not true. That is not so. So faith excludes doubting. They can't exist together. Matthew 7, 24 and 25, the one who lives by faith has his or her life built on the solid rock. That's Jesus Christ himself. In verse 6, James says that the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That's an example of faith and doubt. A wave of the sea tossed by the wind. You've seen storms, at least on TV. You've seen storms at the ocean. And the water's everywhere. The water's going everywhere. That's what you're doing when you live in doubt. You're going everywhere. You're going this way and that way. There's no way forward. Sometimes you're going backwards. You're not making any progress at all. He warns us against being up one day and down the next. We have days like that, don't we? We have days when we're up, feel pretty good. The next day, we're dragging in the dirt. Our lips getting, our lips getting, uh, um, our lips getting scraped by the gravel because it's hanging so low. We need to build our lives up on the rock. We need to ask in faith. James says, "Don't be double-minded." He says that you're unstable if you're double-minded. That is, set your heart in faith on God that God will meet your need. And stay there. Just stay there. You know, sometimes I've had the experience where, um, especially when it comes to forgiveness, and I'll know that I have to forgive somebody. God will put it on my heart. I've got to forgive somebody. 
And I'll go through a process where I'm praying, and I'm praying for God to help me um, get myself right so that I can forgive that person. And I'll work through that, and sometimes it takes a while. And then the next day, I'll be back there again. And it's like I never forgave that person. And I have to tell myself, no, you went through the process to forgive them yesterday. You forgave them yesterday. It's done. We don't have to do it again. You just put yourself on that rock and just stay there. And if there's something that's pulling you off one way or the other, you say, no, I've done that. I don't have to go through that again. I've forgiven them, and that's how it stands. You don't forgive and then take the forgiveness back. How does that work out? No, you just say, I have forgiven them, and it's done. Chapter 4, verse 6, James encourages the double-minded to purify your heart. That's the problem. Our heart is not pure. Our heart's not pure. Now, sometimes we have to purify our hearts more than once, don't we? Because life happens. Life happens and stuff, you know, you know how it is. You know how it is when you're working, you're working outside and you get all dirty and you take a bath and you clean up and then you go back outside and work again. Now you're dirty again. Now you need another bath. Wouldn't it be something if we just took a bath and said, well, this is good for a year. I'll take a bath next year because I'm cleaned up. I'm cleaned up and, and it just stays that way. But you're not. You're not. Sometimes we need to bath several times a day. Jesus spoke to the problem of being double-minded on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is wealth or property or stuff. You can't serve stuff. We need to be single-minded in our pursuit of God. We realize that we use stuff in our life, but life isn't about stuff. We use it to get through life. And if we have more than we need, then we need to unload it. It's just slowing us down, just weighting us down. Christian discipleship is based, based on being single-minded. Mark eight thirty four. we need to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, cast off every sin, things that interfere with our relationship with Christ, things that would weigh us down and run with revolution, resolution the race which lies ahead of us, looking only at Jesus, both the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one that we began life with, and he's the one who completes it. Jesus is our goal and our purpose for living. We cannot be double-minded and be effective as Christians. We cannot be double-minded. So the conclusion is clear in verse 7. If someone asks with doubt or is double-minded, let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Look at that verse right there. If you're double-minded, don't think you'll receive anything from the Lord. If you're double-minded, don't think you'll receive anything from the Lord. We need to be singly focused. We need to be single-minded. 
We need to be single-minded, focused on God, knowing that there are things in life we have to do to live. There are things in life that we have to have to live. But that's not our focus. Our focus is not on the stuff. I've seen people driving down the road. You probably have too. And uh, they got a huge pickup. They got a huge pickup because they're hauling a huge trailer. You know, one of those toy hauler things. I saw one the other day with five axles on it. My goodness. The thing was like a house going down the road. And loaded up behind it were all the toys. Where's that guy's focus, do you think? To me, it looked like it probably was on his toys. I was like, man, what would it, what would it take to just get loaded up to go for a weekend? Take you all week just to load it up. Now, maybe that wasn't his focus. Maybe he's a very godly man, and he just had a lot, and so then, you know, he had all this stuff. But, but you know, for me, an onlooker, it looked to me like that's where his focus was. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun. I'm not saying you can't, you know, have toys and stuff like that. But just don't let that be your focus. Your focus needs to be on God. Maybe this guy's focus was on God so much that God blessed him to the point that he could hardly haul it down the road. That's probably what it was. So Christian discipleship is based on being single-minded. We need to deny ourselves deny ourselves things that we want, cast off every sin that interferes with our relationship with Christ. Christ is the one that begins our life, and Christ is the one that concludes it. In verse 5, if we ask God, we shall receive wisdom. Notice what that verse says. If we ask God, we shall receive. It doesn't say may receive. It doesn't say might receive. It doesn't say you'll receive it, but in an, on an, in an installment plan, you know, five, six months from now. No, it says, ask from God and we shall receive wisdom. That is a promise. That's a promise. If we ask, it will be given to us. And we know that God wants to give us good things. God is a good, loving father, and he wants us to have good things. Jesus taught that same principle in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 and 7, he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, and it will be, knock, and it will be opened to you. Again, that promise. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened. Sometimes we want to sit there. I'm like this. I'm a little bit passive. It's my nature. I want to sit there, and I want to say, God, ask for your blessing, and then I just sit there. And I sit there waiting. I wait, and I wait, and I'm thinking, well, I don't understand this, you know. Uh, it was a promise. God promised me, ask and you'll receive, and I'm just sitting there. God says, no, get up, get up and move around, and get up and knock. What does that mean when you say knock? It means you're looking for the promise. Get up and move. Get up and move around. Sometimes when you get up and move around, you find out that God opens doors, that as you're moving around, you're seeing things that you didn't see when you were sitting there. So don't just sit there on your couch. 
Get up and move around. Get up and do some things. Matthew 7, the ninth verse and 11, Matthew 7, 9 through 11, um, he, he compares our heavenly father to our earthly father. He says, just like your earthly father loves you and wants to give you what is good, our heavenly father wants to give you what is good. So James continues on that teaching. He says that we often don't have because we don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. That's the confidence that we have in him is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, if we ask something bad, if we ask something, you know, really bad, something that would uh, destroy our relationship with our spouse, do you think God's going to give us that? I certainly hope not. I certainly hope that if we ask something that would destroy our relationship with our spouse, that God would just poke us in the eye and say, here, take that. That probably is what would happen. But if we ask according to his will, how can we ask according to his will? We ask according to his will because we're walking so close with God, we know what his will is. We know what it is, and we ask according to that, and God will give it. It's always the will of God to give his his children to give us wisdom. Do you think you can go wrong by asking for godly wisdom? You can't go wrong. You cannot go wrong. God wants us to be wise. We need wisdom in this day and age. In this day and age, we need wisdom more than any other time. So the lesson here is clear that if we lack wisdom, if we recognize that we, ask, that we lack wisdom, if we ask God, if we recognize that God alone can supply us wisdom, then we will receive it. And it's an unlimited guarantee. We can come to our Father as often as we want and ask for wisdom. You can come to God every hour of the day and ask for wisdom, and He will give it to you. It's an unlimited guarantee. I think about Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom. God said, because you didn't ask for yourself, you didn't ask for uh, power, you didn't ask for a bigger kingdom, but you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom. And Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. So I'm convinced that when we ask God for wisdom, we commit our ways to him. We have wisdom and strength to do the right thing. I'm convinced that he will direct our way. He will direct our path. He will direct us from wrong, and he'll guide us towards the right. You can find that in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So, very quickly, verses 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as the flower of the field, he'll pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. One of the major areas that we need wisdom from God is with money. The love of God and the love of money are mutually exclusive. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, we cannot serve God and money in Matthew 19, 24, he says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the heaven of God or the kingdom of God. 
Um, however, we must recognize that the inherent evil is not with money. The problem is not with money. It's with our love of money. Our love of money. First Timothy 6.10, Paul wrote to Timothy, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced them through with many sorrows. Notice that people left the faith because of money. And then they, they, um, and then they reaped what they had sown. They reaped sorrow because of the love of money. It wasn't the money that did it. It was the love of it. Jesus meets that problem head on by sharing the advice to both those who are rich and those who are poor. He recognized that riches are a snare not only to the rich, but they're a snare to the poor because the poor believe that money will solve all their problems. It's a snare to the poor too. They're thinking, geez, if I just had more money, if I just had more money, I could fix my car. If I just had more money, I could pay this bill. So Jesus is teaching that life's deepest needs can only be met by Jesus, not by money. And Jesus wants to provide even the most basic needs of food, clothing, shelter. Matthew 6.33, he sees that he will care for us, to provide for us, if we will first seek the kingdom of heaven. Notice the order there. Seek the kingdom of heaven first, and then everything you need will be provided. We have that backwards in our life, don't we? We get up in the morning, and the first thing we think of is, man, I got to go to work. I need that paycheck. I got to go to work. I need the money. If I get the money, the money will solve my problems. And then, hopefully, there's a little time left over, and we read two verses from Proverbs, and we say, thank you, God. And we have it all backwards. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Everything you need will be provided for you. Remember, James is writing here to believers who have lost everything they had because of the persecution for their faith. They'd lost everything. And he's saying, seek first the kingdom of heaven. You might think for them, he would have told them, go get a job. Go get a, go get a good job. Go get a better job. No, he didn't say that. He said, God will provide your needs. These people literally forsook everything to be faithful in following Jesus. And that's the context that that is written in. Verse 9, riches of humble circumstances. The words of James there are encouraging. They say, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. So those people who find themselves in a humble circumstances or a low position need to be encouraged by the fact that there will be a higher position waiting for them in the kingdom of God. That word there used for glory, that word means to boast or to brag. And that's what James is encouraging us to do in that sense. We should be bragging. We should be boasting. We should be rejoicing in the fact that we have a low, uh, a low state, a low position, because it's not going to stay that way. There's a promise that it's not going to stay that way. So God invited us to the riches of his kingdom. We have the assurance of 
an exalted position in the kingdom. We're lowly subjects of the king of kings today. And although it might be tough going right now, there will come a day, there will come a day when we will cross over into the promised land. There will come a day when we receive our reward. Proverbs 13 and 7 says, There's one who makes himself rich and yet has nothing, one who makes himself poor and yet has great riches. Jesus said it another way in Matthew 6, verse 20 and 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In that context, he encourages us to lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven where they won't disappear. They won't go away. We've all had, had that experience when we got something that we worked for for a really long time. We saved money for it. We, we bought it and we used it a few times. And pretty soon it begins to break. Pretty soon it begins to look you know, kind of shabby. It's uh, dirty. It gets scratched. It gets used. And we're thinking, gee, I worked so long and so hard for that. And it's looking awful. It looks terrible. We've all had that experience. Jesus is saying, lay up treasure where it won't be decreased. Matter of fact, it'll be increased. Think of it as an investment. An investment in your life after this life. Put your focus on that. Verse 10. The poverty of riches. So James discusses the appropriate way of Christians that are rich in this age, how they should relate to those riches. He says we should not glory in our riches, but glory in our humiliation. That seems strange. It's contradictory. James is using kingdom talk here, and he's sharing his advice on the perspective of the kingdom of God. The analogy is of riches. Again, he he compares the riches to the flowers of the field that are beautiful when they're in full bloom, but we know they won't last long. We plant flowers, we enjoy them for a time, we know they won't last, especially when they come in a vase. They come in a vase, we know it's days, right? When the sun comes up in the heat, it withers the flowers, the flowers drop off, and that's the end of their beauty. And that's the way it is with riches. Riches erode away, You work hard for them. They erode away. Anything you buy with your riches erodes away. It's beautiful and attractive for a while, but it's temporary. We know it's temporary. In in verse 11, James says, the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. So, as we see there, Jesus warned us of the dangers of trusting in riches. Riches are deceitful. Um, he warned us in Luke twelve fifteen, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things. Our life does not consist in the abundance of things. In fact, we can gather so much around us that it becomes a burden. We become a slave to what it is that we have. Um, there's that parable of the rich fool who planned to tear down his barns and build bigger ones to contain wealth. But the Lord required his soul that day, and he was dead. And that was the end of it. That was the end of his riches. Jesus ends that story in Luke 12, 21 by saying, So is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. So the the essence of that teaching in James is that he says the rich are not to be so foolish that they trust in wealth. 
They should be rich towards God, and they should give glory to their, to their humiliation, not their riches. In verse 10, that word humiliation means to be made low, to be, to be made low, to be humble. Describes a brother who is lowly. So how to be rich and poor? James is contending for the rich and the poor to live in the same manner, with the same priorities. Whether we're rich or poor, we are the Lord's. Even though James doesn't refer to it specifically, I think that we can be fair to the text and to the basic conclusion to suggest that James is encouraging his readers to enjoy the life of contentment, whatever our circumstances are. Enjoy a life of contentment. Rather than pursuing things, to enjoy a life of contentment. Hebrews 13.5, James, or uh, he wrote, Paul wrote, um, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And then he concludes in Philippians 4.13, that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This was not in reference to a track meet or a football game or a college exam. This was in reference to being content no matter what Paul had. I'm not saying you can't use that verse in those other contexts. I'm just saying that's not the context it was written in. Uh, The focus of godly living is in trusting God for all things. Christ is the source of everything that we need. Christ has promised to never leave us. He's promised to never forsake us. In Philippians 4.19, he's promised to supply all of our needs. He has invited us in Matthew 6.33 to seek his kingdom first and his riches and everything will be added to us. So all of us should be both rich and poor, both exalted and humble, both lowly and high. But whatever our earthly position is, we need to understand, we need to keep our eyes focused on the fact that the best is yet to come. And the Lord can always be trusted and his kingdom will come. Now, if you've been thinking about giving your life to God, giving your life to Jesus Christ, I would concur. I would admonish you that the time for thinking is over. Don't put it off any longer. You've been thinking long enough. Really, you have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. You might think that your life is too much of a mess, that you've made such a mess out of your life that you can never figure it out, that you need to get your life straightened up before you approach Jesus. I would say, don't think of it like that. You don't have the capability to clean your life up. You've made such a mess out of your life yourself. What you need is Jesus to come and clean your life up. It's not about being good enough. If it were about being good enough, none of us would be good enough. It's about being willing to give up yourself, to give yourself up to the Lord. You know, you're your entry into the Christian family isn't based on who you are. It isn't based on your goodness. 
It's based on his grace. In fact, you're probably limited in the goodness area. But it's a blessing that Christ is not limited in the grace area. The grace area will cover over for you. A life of faith is possible for all of God's people. God allows issues and problems in our lives to drive us to him sometimes if we're not drawn to him. It doesn't mean that God hates us. It means that God loves us enough to do whatever he has to do to bring us to him. So if you've been thinking about making Jesus your Savior, your Lord, I want you to stop thinking about it. The time for a decision is right now. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. Close your eyes and bow your head unless you're driving. And then keep your eye on the road. You don't want to meet the Lord yet. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, I submit my life to you. I submit my heart to you today, right now. Lord, forgive me for the things that I've done that were not pleasing to you. Lord, lead me forward into living my life in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, take control of my life and bless me indeed. Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives right now. Lord, we invite you to work in our life, to use us in your work on this earth. And we ask, Lord, that our life from now on would be a blessing and an honor to you. Lord God, we submit to you. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today or maybe the second time in your lifetime, you prayed sincerely, you prayed with faith, believing God bless you and welcome to God's family.